Well, we're in, uh, still in the book of Revelation today. A we'll, uh, couple more messages on the seven letters to the seven churches. If you turn to Revelation 2 and 3. So last week we were looking at, Jesus said, I know your needs. And he, he talked about our present needs. We identified four things. You need to remember, to repent, to stand fast, and obey the Spirit. And so now today we're going to look at the the future needs, things that Jesus sees that he is going to supply for us in the future. And there are uh, ten things that we will identify. We'll only get through the first four of them today. You know, beyond uh, just being in heaven, maybe being with loved ones, that sort of thing, we, we don't normally give a lot of thought to the kinds of things that we're going to be looking at today. Maybe, in fact, some of these things you have never thought of before as, a, as something that Christ is going to, to supply for you because of his grace and his love for you. So as we, we begin to look at Revelation 2 and 3 and what Jesus will supply for our future needs, let's just stop and praise him. Lord, we thank you, we praise you that you are such a great God and loving Father, that you are our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend. And as we look to your word today, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to receive it, to see you and to see the things you have for us, that we might praise you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. So, there are four things. Actually, there's more than four because some of them are, are um, multiple items, but at least four main points that we'll look at today. Things that Jesus are, is going to supply for our future needs. And the first happens in Revelation 2, 7 to the church at Ephesus. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. Now let me just stop there for a moment because that's a a repeated rephrase uh, as well. And that is, uh, to him who overcomes. Verse 11, for instance, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes. And that's repeated throughout these seven letters. So who is he who overcomes? Who is the overcoming one? Who, who, who qualifies as an overcomer? We just want to look quickly at a couple of passages. If you go back maybe five or six pages in your Bible to 1 John chapter 5. First John is located just before 2 John, which is just before 3 John. So, 1 John chapter 5, let's look at verses 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We're overcomers by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes, it's not just faith, but now it's defined more. He who believes 
that Jesus is the Son of God. We have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we also uh, talked about Romans 12 last week. Uh, just to remind you of that, Romans 12, 11, says that they overcame him, the evil one, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and that they did not love their life to the death. That's an overcomer. Someone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and lives a life based on that belief. So he who overcomes. And I trust that is true of you. That that, that describes you. So he says here, verse 7 of chapter 2, to him, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So he's going to give us to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life is the very first tree mentioned in the Bible, Genesis 2.8. And it is the very last tree mentioned in the Bible in Revelation 22. It's the first and the last. Now remember the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden, but also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve were able to eat of the tree of life, and, as, and they had eternal life because they were eating of this tree of life as long as they could eat of it. But when they sinned by eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God says, we need to put man out of the garden lest he eat of the tree of life and live forever. <clears throat> because in God's grace, he did not want man to live in an eternal state of fallenness, but rather to be able to be redeemed. And so he put him out of the garden and he blocked the way to the tree of life with cherubim who would guard it with swords of fire. And so no one has ever been able to get to the tree of life or into the garden since that time. But in the end times, he says, that we will eat again of the tree of life. Now, look at Revelation 22, verse 1 and 2. We get a little bit of a description of what the tree of life looks like. This is a description of um, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, and the throne of God in heaven. And John writes, chapter 22, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street... And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So that evidently it's going to have twelve different fruits, and it sounds like they will be consecutively. So you have one fruit, and then next another fruit, and then next another fruit, whether they're Months as we think of months or, or not, uh, we don't know, but it's, going to have a, it's a tree that's not going to bear just one kind of fruit, but 12 different kinds of fruit in order. Always this variety. 
And look at the description of it. It's in the middle of its street. So coming from the throne of God in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life. So the tree of life is in the middle of the street, and it's on both sides of the river. It's kind of hard to imagine, but it's, picture it like this, a very broad street. Now you have to remember that this is a scene in heaven where dimensions are much bigger than what we think of. I mean, the side, one side of the city of Jerusalem is 1,200 miles wide. That's a big city. So imagine a broad street, maybe a mile wide. And in the middle of the street is a river. And in the middle of the river is a tree, which spans the whole river, and it goes to the banks on both sides of the street. So it's going to be a humongous tree bearing these 12 fruits. Um, I imagine the taste of those fruits are going to be better than anything we have ever experienced in this life. But we are we're going to be able to partake of the tree of life, which was lost in the garden. Jesus says, I'm going to let you have that. Not only that, in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So here we have paradise. Have you ever wondered what the Garden of Eden was like? What paradise was like? I remember uh, when I was much younger thinking, why did Adam and Eve ruin paradise for us? I would have liked to have been there. Of course, I would have ruined paradise too. But I would still like to have been there. Well, you get to be there. And you get to be in a paradise which is incorruptible. It's never going to change, never going to end. It's always going to be awesome. In the paradise of God. This is paradise restored. And you remember the thief on the cross when Jesus said, Today you will be with me where? In paradise. And someday that is where we will be. The second thing he says that he provides as a future need is safety. And he says it in a couple different ways. One is our ultimate safety, and one is the uh, closer, the tribulation deliverance. So let's think about the ultimate victory and safety here first in chapter 2, verse 10. He says to the church of Sardis, uh, excuse me, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give to you the crown of life. You be faithful unto death, and I will give to you the crown of life. Well, believers will die physically, we're, we're all going to die, but we will never die spiritually. We will be given the crown of life. There are five different crowns mentioned in the New Testament. There's the, the crown of righteousness. There's the 
imperishable crown. There's the crown of life. There's a crown of rejoicing and crown of glory. So the crown of righteousness is said to be given to all of those who have loved his appearing. Not just that they recognize it's going to happen. Not just acknowledging God's going to come back one day. But those who have loved his appearing. That is, they're so looking forward to it like your, your loved one who's been away for a long time and you know he's coming back and soon and, and you're so looking forward to it. You love his appearing. That kind. Those who have loved his appearing will be given the crown of righteousness. Then there is an imperishable crown, also called the victor's crown. Uh, this is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 9, about those who run the race and those who fight the good fight in such a way that they use self-discipline and determination and have a focus on the prize that is set before them. An imperishable victor's crown. The third is the crown of life, also called the martyr's crown. And uh, that's what we have here in verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You may die once, but guess what? I'm going to give you the crown of life. You will live forever. The crown of life is the, called the martyr's crown for those who have endured trials patiently. Then there's a crown of rejoicing. It's also called the soul winner's crown. And then there's the crown of glory, which is given to godly shepherds, elders who had served as examples to the flock. So God's going to give uh, these different crowns to us. Here is the crown of life. He says something more in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. By the second death. Like I said, we're all going to die once, physically. Hebrews 9 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. So dying once is not the problem. Is dying twice that's the problem. So what is the second death? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Those who are part of the first resurrection, that when Christ comes back, he will raise the dead. He will raise us. All believers are part of the first resurrection and that they will live forever. And over such, all believers, the second death has no power. But we need more information. So look at chapter 20, verse 14 and 15. Then death 
and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death. The lake of fire is identified as the second death. Verse 15, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire or the second death. Chapter 21, verse 7 and 8. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolatry, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the second death is that final place of torment that even death and Hades itself are cast into. And the first ones to be cast into this are, is Satan, the false prophet, and the beast. But now look at 21.4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Two different eternities. One of them called the second death, which Jesus describes as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then the eternity of heaven with him, where there is no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Those are all passed away. And so there is a second death that you don't want to be a part of. And Jesus says here in uh, Revelation 2.10 that they will not be part of that. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Who is he who overcomes? The one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and lives that way will not be hurt by the second death. You, if you are a believer in Christ, you have nothing to fear from that. If you are not a believer in Christ, you have much to fear. And I would plead with you to put your faith and trust in him. So not only does Jesus talk about this ultimate victory and uh, deliverance, but also maybe closer at hand, time-wise, is the tribulation deliverance. Chapter 3, verse 10. Writing to the church of Philadelphia, he says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, when you see the word test there in verse 10, to test those or try them, this is not like taking a test in school. It's more like chapter 2 verse 10 the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, meaning death, not just 
take this exam, but it's a, a, a testing of a different sort. Now, this, this is a tribulation deliverance. The tribulation is a seven-year period of time that is coming near the end. We'll have the next thing to happen on God's prophetic schedule is the rapture. Where, where the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel. He will come in the clouds and he will call every believer up to him. First, those who are dead in the graves who have put their trust in him, he will call them up and give them resurrected bodies. And then those who are alive and remain on the earth, he will call us up and so we shall ever be with the Lord. That will begin a seven-year period of time that Jesus calls the Great Tribulation in Matthew chapter 24. If you want to read more about the Tribulation, Matthew 24 is a good place to start. <clears throat> and this will last for exactly seven years to the day. And so what Jesus is talking about here is a deliverance from that time of tribulation which shall come. So first of all, we note that the tribulation will be universal. I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. This is going to be a worldwide tribulation. Secondly, the tribulation will be against unbelievers. The tribulation is not primarily about what Satan is going to do, the wrath of Satan on this earth, which will be real uh, because Revelation 12 says he knows his time is short. He is going to fiercely attack the, the people of God, especially the Jews during the tribulation. The church will be gone. But many thousands upon thousands will come to Christ during that time and will live through the tribulation. Some of them will be martyred. Many will be martyred by Satan. But this is primarily the wrath of God on the earth and then Satan's response to the wrath of God. So let's look at a couple of examples. Revelation 6. The tribulation covers Revelation 6 through 19. So Looking at Revelation 6, just a, a couple of sample passages here. Verse 9 and 10 of Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? <clears throat> and so the vengeance is going to be on those who dwell on the earth. Verse 15 through 17. This is the reaction of the unbelievers who are receiving the wrath of God. Verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now there's an oxymoron. A lamb 
who has wrath. Save us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? What strikes me about this is that they know this is the wrath of God, and rather than repent even at that time, when they could have repented, they ask instead to be covered by the mountains and the rocks to cover them, shield them from the wrath of God instead. The tribulation will be against unbelievers. It will not be against the bride of Christ. In fact, now we want to go back to chapter 3 to see what he's saying here in verse 10. He says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which is to come upon the whole world. I will keep you from it. I will keep, which means to to guard or protect you from it. And the word from there is important that he, he says, I'll keep you out of it, from it, not Not that I will preserve you in it, which he can do. He could do that. Not that I will guard you through it, but I will keep you out of it. I will keep you from it. So that we as believers will not go through the tribulation. Now, there are a number of other verses that say the same kind of thing. We don't have time to look at, but as believers... That will not be our destiny. He will provide safety from the tribulation. Uh, Number three is hidden manna. This is chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. So hidden manna. You remember that God fed Israel with manna during their wilderness wandering? And at the end of that time, God instructed Israel to to take a pot of manna and place it inside the Ark of the Covenant and then put the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. In fact, the top of the Ark was the mercy seat. So inside that mercy seat, inside the Holy of Holies, was a pot of manna. When the temple was uh, being destroyed by the Babylonians in their captivity, it was said that the prophet Jeremiah took this pot of manna and hid it somewhere. And no one has been able to find it since. Therefore, it's called the hidden manna. And I will give to you to eat of the hidden manna. Now, the Jews believed that when Messiah comes, one of the ways they will know that is that the hidden manna will appear again. So, by the way, you know what manna means? Manna. Manna, 
Hebrew. <laughs> so God says he's going to supply something for them. And as they sleep at night, he rains down this manna on, on the ground. So the ground is covered with manna when they wake up in the morning. It's a white, uh, sweet, almost bread-like kind of a substance. We would know it today as a Cinnabon, I think. <laughs> Maybe just wishful thinking. But, but when they got up, and they were looking around, this, the ground is completely covered with this stuff, and they start eating it, and they would say, what is it? What is it? What is it? And the Hebrew word for what is it is manna. Manna. They were saying manna, which we would translate, what is it? And that name stuck for that, that supply that God had given them. Manna. Well, um, as, I, as I said, they believed that when Messiah came, that the hidden manna would reappear. In fact, in the apocryphal book of 2 Baruch 29.8, it reads, And it shall come to pass at that selfsame time, in the days when the Messiah comes, that the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high, and they will eat of it in those years. So, go to chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. This helps explain an interesting event that happens in John chapter 6. Now, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And they were very happy about that. They had their bellies filled that evening, and now the next day has come, and it's breakfast time, and guess what they're looking for? <clears throat> and so they start this conversation with, uh, about food with Jesus, and verse 27, Jesus says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life and so forth. I want to pick it up, um, verse 30. Therefore, they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we, we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Now remember, he had just fed the 5,000. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they are wondering, what's, what sign will you give us to prove to us that you are the Messiah? And so they bring up the manna, hint, hint. Because they knew when Messiah comes, manna comes. How about this manna stuff? Our fathers ate the manna. He gave them bread from heaven. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. First of all, he corrects their theology. It wasn't Moses that provided this for you, but my Father gives you the true bread 
from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life unto the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. This sounds even better than manna. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 48, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and died. Don't be looking for more manna. You need something greater than manna. I'm the bread of life. They ran up manna and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that, may, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world And we are going to commemorate that very thing this morning as we partake of bread this morning to remember that he is the bread of life which was given for us. So, back in Revelation chapter 2, he says, To him overcomes... I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now, it's unsure whether to take this symbolically or literally. uh, In the sense that the Old Testament manna uh, sustained them physically for a time, but Jesus is the New Testament answer to that, and he sustains us spiritually Forever. So that could be meant, what, what is meant here. This is what MacArthur says, uh, how we should take it. But it, it also could be real, physical manna. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Um, so uh, both, both ways are true and possible. But notice that uh, he's going to give this to us to eat. And in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, he's going to give us some of the the fruit of the tree of life to eat. Have you ever wondered, are we going to eat in heaven? Well, Jesus keeps talking about things we're going to eat. Yes, we're going to eat. And there's no calories. It's all good. The next thing he says, and we'll end with this. I'll give you a white stone. With a new name. Chapter 2 verse 17. He says. um, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on the stone. A new name written. Which no one knows. Except him who receives it. Give him a white stone. Now. uh, Some background information. Helps a lot in understanding this. In the ancient world, they did not have invitation cards like we have today. And so one of the things that they would do for very special events was to give someone a white stone with their name on it 
that was like their entrance ticket. This was especially true of, of athletes. So they, were, they had won some great athletic competition, the Olympic of those days or something, and those who were the victors were given as part of their prize not only a crown, a wreath, but they were given a white stone and their name was written on it. And so when they came to the great banquet, all they had to do was present their white stone with their name on it and they were given the place of honor. And so everyone back then would have known exactly what that meant when Jesus says, I will give you a white stone with your name on it. This is your entrance ticket. This is your entrance to the place of honor as someone who is victorious. This is more than just you get into heaven. He says, not only will I give you a white stone, but what is on it? What does he write on that stone? Verse 17. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written on which no one knows except him who receives it. You see, in this case, your name is not going to be written on the stone. It's something better. It is a, is a new name. Think about the importance of names throughout the Bible where Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, Abram's name to Abraham, and so forth. As he, as he does throughout the Bible, it shows... Uh, God's rulership over someone, but also he changes their name to something which is more significant about them, something which characterizes them or shows their character. And so he's going to give you a white stone with a new name. Um, the word new here is not, not a word that means new contrasted to old, but rather a word that means something that is qualitatively different. It speaks of character. And right now, my character here on earth is still corrupted. E even though my sins are forgiven, I continue to sin. I have a corrupted character. But one day, it will be incorruptible. There will be no more sin. Then I will have a different character and the name will be fitting for that, even though it's not fitting today. So imagine, for instance, a situation in which you have a, a destitute woman with a ruined reputation. And she marries the wealthiest, noblest man in the land. She takes on his name. That is her name from now on. But not only that, as they come together as husband and wife, he has a pet name for her, a, a name of endearment, a name which is just special between the two of them, a name that only they know. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I will give him a new name written on it, which no one knows. No one of the millions and millions of people in heaven in that day, no one else is going to know this name 
except him who receives it. So he is going to give you a white stone, and on that stone he's going to write a name, something that is special, just between him and you. Something that which demonstrates his endearment towards you, his love for you. Something about your relationship with him and what you mean to him is going to be written on that stone. A precious name that only you will have. And only he and you know. Something special between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will be precious, won't it? By the way, he has that name for you right now. He hasn't written it on your stone yet or given it to you, but that's how he thinks of you today. That's how much he loves you. I hope that fills your heart with wanting to say, thank you, Lord, for all these things that Jesus is going to supply and more. Thank you, Lord. In fact, would you be willing to say that with me out loud? Thank you, Lord. Let's say it together on three. And I want to, this roof is high, but I want to raise it about ten more feet. On three, we'll say thank you, Lord. One, two, three. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for what you are going to supply for us in your grace. And Lord, we thank you for what you have already supplied on the cross. Now as we come to communion today to remember your sacrifice for us, Lord, will you be magnified in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.